Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 25th, 2018. This is episode 2,237 of the Survival Podcast. That's 2237. It is a Monday and I am back in the seat. We are back to our... Regularly scheduled programming, as they say, and I'm back from my vacation to Florida. I'm not going to say too much on the vacation itself, because I'm thinking about doing a show tomorrow again on surf fishing, which I I probably spent a good 30 to 40% of my total time in Florida, other than when I was sleeping, fishing. Um, fishing mostly the mornings, and I'll tell you about that tomorrow if we go into it, but it was... Uh, It was a well-needed, well-deserved, well-earned, in my opinion, break uh, from reality. And, uh, it, you know, when you take vacations like that, it's not without giving some things up as far as, you know, control back on the homestead, uh, keeping the show running, possibly losing some momentum. It's something I, I always have a little bit of concern when I do it, but uh, it's also something I need to do so that my brain doesn't, like, scramble into a million pieces, and I would not be any good at this job anymore if I didn't occasionally take a good vacation like that. I will tell you, it has rekindled uh, my love for fishing in the surf. That's why we'll probably talk about that tomorrow. Today, though, is a listener feedback show, and I got kind of a mix today, a pretty diverse mix. A lot of stuff came in while I was gone. A lot of stuff came up while I was gone. Uh, the media is doing their normal shit with a bunch of stupidity, and I, I want to try to help you guys again, and I've been doing this for 10 years now, but try to reinforce the concept of, like, Getting facts, forming your own opinions, not overreacting, and not just grabbing on, clinging to stupid shit. <clears throat> Especially when it can, it, it's really easy to not grab on and cling to stupid shit when it is counter to what you believe, right? So when somebody presents something, it's clearly not factually based, and it's meant to support something you disagree with. Well, then it's really easy to be logical and rational and reasonable. When it's not so easy is when that information is counter to what you want to believe. So we're going to have our first three sections today kind of talking about that. We're going to talk about North Korea denuclearizing. And an article that I wrote the day before I left um, called North Korea Will Denuclearize uh, because it was always the plan. Um, and and that, that really is, is the case. It's exactly why North Korea is going to denuclearize. I'm not saying they might, I'm not saying they could, I'm not saying this gamble by Trump might pay off, blah, 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 yada, 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 bullshit. I'm telling you they absolutely are going to denuclearize. They're going to denuclearize, they're going to pull back some of their offensive capabilities while they leave plenty of it enough in force to uh, to make sure that no one's pulling the trick on them or anything. But And I'm not saying the dude that's running the place, Kim Jong Ding Dong, is a good guy. I'm telling you, he's, he knows what he's doing, he's not crazy, and... It was always the plan. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I'm going to have a, a piece for you guys today, an article, a little video I put out, called Why the U.S. Would Want a Space Force. Just the facts. Remember the old thing? Just the facts, ma'am. Only the facts, right? This is like a lesson really in journalism here for journalists, since journalism don't seem to practice journalism anymore. I'm going to take this issue that everybody's making stupid memes about, like Trump fighting aliens from the Aliens movie and stupid shit like that, 
or, or what have you, Jim Carrey memes uh, with him screaming in the phone or whatever. And I'm going to say, like, okay, let's put it aside and let's ask why would the U.S. even want a Space Force? What would be the purpose of it? And I'll give you more facts. This will upset some of you. Uh, some of you will think I'm taking a position. I'm not. I'll get to that when I get to it. And then on the same vein, I want to talk about Snopes just for a moment, the website Snopes that debunks a lot of stuff. And what I'm going to say is stop your bullshit, folks, on the right with you can't trust Snopes because because they're leftists and they're liberals and it's an old guy and he's a lady and you're ugly and they have a cat. That's actually all true, but that... That, that is not an objection to many of their rebuttals as though it is used as such. And we'll get to that in a moment. Then we have a segment called Jack is a Jerk, again, and why it makes him happy. Um, and then I have a question on how do you store what you eat and what you store when you're on a paleo, primal, low-carb diet. It actually isn't hard. I have a question on jump starter packs for your vehicle, and the one I specifically would recommend if you were going to get one. And I'll do a segment called Why Stephen Harris is Wrong. Yes, and I will not apologize for it. And Stephen and I have agreed to disagree on this, and I think he's actually moved a little bit in my direction. Surprising though it is. I didn't, this question was actually for Stephen Harris. I didn't want to send it to him because I knew that after he answered it, I would have to again suggest that he move to a state that allows medical marijuana to calm down and, and, and what have you. By the way, Steve, I think they now allow medical marijuana in your state, but they take away your right to own a gun if you get a card. So I think you need a better state to do this in if you're going to keep getting damn near a stroke when somebody asks a question that you don't like. And remember, guys, I love Steve. He's a great dude. Uh, next up, Monsanto is dead. Long live Monsanto is bare, yes. Uh, Monsanto is now bare, and I'll talk a little bit about why that's important and what... The PR move will be going forward for them. Um, getting a family on a budget, and one of my new favorite phrases, I've heard it a million times before, I'll, I'll tell you about where I heard it while I was on vacation and how, even though it was a complete joke, it kind of rekindled my love for it. It's one team, one dream is the way, and the only real way to get a family on a budget. And then a, a person wrote a very thoughtful little piece for me on what we should call our children. Uh, we've talked about children being called, you know, uh, teacup kids. We have helicopter pilots and all. You know, what should be the other name? Some people have suggested iron, and I said maybe it should be more like willow because uh, willows bend and move with the breeze and things like that. Um, someone suggested the term spring. I kind of like the, uh, the uh, connotation there, but I'll tell you why I don't think we really need a name for it. But I do like the discussion, so we'll have the discussion. And I have a question on training a dog when you have small children, specifically like toddler-age children. It actually isn't that hard, and it goes back to the same rule that I've always said when you're training, especially puppies. Put the animal in a position where it is difficult, deny impossible for it to fail, and have it do the right thing long enough, and then doing the wrong thing will be counter to what it believes it should do. All of that and more in just a moment. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Now, what are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? I know it's shocking. I know you would have never expected it. But Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason is your source for Berkey water filtration systems and parts and support thereof. The filters, anything you need uh, to keep your Berkey running in tip-top shape or get a Berkey if you don't have one. And in my opinion, you should. I think they are the dime to the dollar, uh, pennies on the gallon, the best deal in water purification on the planet. 
Uh, I have a Berkey. I use it all the time. I don't need to use it. I'm on a well, and my well water tests out to be just great, especially once I go through a gun water softener because it's so hard when it comes out of the faucet without a water softener. You can probably put somebody's eye out with it. Uh, but actually, I feel much safer by using my Berkey. Uh, you know, how would I know that my well is contaminated until I got sick? And if you're not on a well, how would you know your city's water is screwed up until, until you got sick? You notice every time that there's like a boil water advisor or everything, somebody gets sick and then they figure out it's the water? Yeah, you don't want to be that person. So you want a water filtration system, I suggest Berkey, and I suggest no less than Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, because, hey, he's the one, the original, the Berkey Guy. Now, you'd think you'd have the dadgone website, theberkeyguy.com, or berkeyguy1234.com. It's actually directive21.com, directive21.com. He has a lot of other cool stuff for your prepping needs. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. When we didn't have a sponsor, when we weren't looking for sponsors, Vikram Tal on Safe Castle said, hey, we want to sponsor you. We said, hey, I don't have but like 50 people listening yet. Give me some time. We'll, we'll do something when we actually can you know, take your money in good faith and good conscience and know we're helping you. So about six months later, we brought them on as the first sponsor. That's nine and a half years ago. Well, they are still with us, still supporting us, and still giving away their premium membership to all MSB members for life for free. That one benefit can pay for your entire member's benefit uh, on the Survival Podcast if you want to support us that support us that way. And they have just about everything you can think of for your prepping needs over at, you guessed it, safecastle.com. They also built some amazing hardened shelters, so you might want to check that as well. Again, you can learn more about that at safecastle.com. So before we dive in today, let's take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 140 A.D. as we take our walk through history, led by David Verne over at tspwiki.com, the Survival, Self-Sufficiency, and History Wiki put together by members of this audience, where you can contribute, by the way. I haven't talked about that in a while. You know, if you think there should be something on our wiki that ain't there or something that should be added to a page, it's a wiki. It's a duocracy. You can just go do it. I don't know how. There's videos that show you how. All you do is set up an account. It's free, and you can be a contributor to the Encyclopedia of Preparedness, Permaculture, Alternative Energy, Guns, History, you name it. If we talk about it, it's all there. It's like a doctorate degree waiting for you, and you can contribute to it and make it even better. And it, It's devoid of the bullshit that Wikipedia is. No politics and crap like that. Anyway, so today we have in year 140, The Alchemist, contributed by David Verne. Claudius Ptolemy was a Greco-Roman scientist, and this year he published The Alchemist, a book on astronomy and mathematics, this book established the Ptolemaic model of the universe. According to this model, the Earth is at the center of the universe. It doesn't move. Everything other than the Earth is a perfect sphere. The universe is a perfect sphere. This model was an accepted model of the universe until the Copernican model of the 1500s. My take by David Verne. The Ptolemaic model was considered settled science, settled science, and later science were laughed at and persecuted for believing otherwise. The problem with settled science is that science is never settled. One scientist can destroy an entire theory if his findings are correct. I think the more important lesson from the Ptolemaic model of the universe is not only was it wrong, not only did it take from the year 140 until the 1500s for it to make headway as being wrong, but people knew it was wrong the entire time. Yeah, I'm serious. People knew it was wrong when it came out. But the church, which was the most dominant form of the state, 
embraced it. Now, the church wasn't that strong yet, but this model suited anyone, including the Romans, that, that, that governed from a totalitarian model. Because, they, of course, remember what they did is they believed that the, the, the emperor eventually would be deified after death and basically you were serving the state. So the humans were the most important thing. We were the center of everything, and therefore everything went around us. And when the Romans embraced Christianity and the church rose to power, well, this just continued. And it was not, it was not other scientists that held this belief in place for so long. It was the state and the church acting as the state that did so. Because it benefited them. And whenever you hear the term settled science, and I don't care what it's about, if the people using the word are political people, you better question their motives. And even when they're scientists, if they're receiving money from political people in the government, you better question their motives. And when they're scientists, and they're using the term settled science for theories and hypotheses, then you better question their credentials and the validity of their, the validity of their degrees. My take by Jack Spirico. And uh, one more time, the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show, your feedback. And a lot, like the first part of this show today really is stuff from me that's not feedback to one person that emailed in. Remember, to get your stuff on a show like this, email me, Jack, at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Make sure TSPC, all together like it's a word, TSPC is in the subject line. That way if it gets sucked into the junk mail filter or whatever, eventually I'll pull it out. Sometimes it might be in there for days, but I'll suck it out and I'll, I'll take a look at it. I'm not saying it's all going to get on the air, but it has a chance to get on the air, and I will see it and I will read it. I read all my emails, except these emails. When you write me an email and it says, I know your time is valuable and I don't want to abuse it, but and there's 8,000 paragraphs, I delete it because your opening line was a lie. And then if you send me an email, it's like 20 paragraphs crammed into one paragraph with no space between anything, and, and I can't see what it is right away, I don't read that. Everything else I read. At least I skim it. That's why I say, make your point, hit return a couple times, give me your details. I'll be a much more likely to at least understand what you're, you're, you're getting to me and maybe use it in the show even if I don't use it directly. But there are times when things are going on out there that I'm watching this community be led like a bull with a ring in its nose and a little little chain attached to it all over the place and uh, the people in general off in the same way and, and I want to speak up on it so the the big one right now is denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula now I, I want you to understand something here nothing I say today is designed to be pro-Trump period we're going to talk about facts and in the next segment we're really really going to talk about facts But in this situation, the only reason that the media is telling you, oh, you can't crush Jim John on, and oh, they're going to keep their way, the only reason they're doing that, period, is because Donald Trump's president. If this had happened in the second term of Barack Obama, or had Hillary Clinton become president of the United States, there would literally be chapel music playing behind photographs and videos of them today while this was going on on mainstream media. But because it's Trump, 
the lies that would be there anyway are so much worse. And my contention is, and again, I wrote this article the day before I left. I was already on vacation. I had already produced a show for that day and for the next day. And I had already decided I was going to take those days off at the beginning of that week to get ready to get out of here. I had a bunch of stuff to take care of. And the, the summit happened, and I'd been thinking this way anyway. I watched how that summit went down. I watched the media's ridiculous coverage of it. I can't believe that they had a North Korean flag next to an American flag. Oh, shut up, you idiot. What did you expect them to have? The Pillsbury Doughboy next to an American flag? But they had uh, they had six American flags next to uh, six uh, North Korean flags. And If there would have just been American flags, they would have said Trump snub. You see what I'm saying? Like, the media just can't be trusted. But I watched the way it actually went down. And when I saw the way it actually went down, I said, Jack, what you've been thinking all this time, you're 100% right. And I wrote the following article I'm about to read you. And I kind of want to point out why I wrote this article at a time like that. And it's because in six months, everybody's going to be talking about this like it was a foregone conclusion, uh, except... You know, when you say, well, I called it before it happened, people are going to say, no, you didn't. And, and I've dealt with that for 10 years doing this show. I said this was, no, you didn't. Okay, well, here's back where I said it. And that's the beauty of being on the air and recording. Sometimes it might take some effort to find the episode, but if I say I said something, generally I can go back and find it prior to when it occurred and say, here's, here's me saying it right here. And if I can't find it myself, I have such a dedicated audience. One of y'all be like, I know what episode it was. It was episode 831, and it was about 15 minutes. And I'll go check, and hey, son of a gun, there it is, you know. Um, and, and, and this is going to be one of those events. And this is going to move very, very swiftly. And what I said to myself that morning was, if I don't write this, there will be so much that will go on in the, the, the next 12 days, 13 days, whatever it is that you're gone, that people, it will lessen the prognostication. People are like, well, it's obvious now. And I, I don't know if it's obvious, but it's damn close. Uh, here's an example of one that just came up today. I, I went and had my lunch uh, after getting everything ready to, and prep for the show and, and, and being ready to hit record. I figured I'll have lunch before I start recording. Got a little bit of a late start today, uh, but getting back and digging out of the hole and, and whatnot. Um, but... I'll put on Fox News, F-A-U-X is how I spell Fox News, by the way, because I see all media is, is bullshit in modern age, and sometimes they report facts and sometimes they don't. It's very few of them are devoid of opinions and true journalism. I actually would say Fox News is less bad when it comes to reporting on Trump than CNN, but just as bad overall, okay? Uh, but so I'm watching Fox News, And they point out something that I'd known about, something that's been kind of kicked around for a while. But it's the concept is called the Trans-Korean Mainline Railroad. And what this is supposed to do is actually connect Russia and South Korea for the purposes of travel and trade, and travel directly through North Korea. Now, this has been kind of picked back up and started again back in 2008, but it... It's really been in like a, a perpetual limbo for, what is it, nine, ten years now. Well, apparently Moon and, and, and the Russians have met recently, and they're all, they're all in on this thing now. And Pyongyang's like, yeah, we can, yeah, I didn't have your railroad through. We don't care. We might want to use it too. It's good. In other words, 
Everybody's betting on this now. Everybody's betting on an open North Korea. The Russians are betting on an open North Korea and forming new trade relations with South Korea with a freaking railroad line going through North Korea. That's just one example of some of the things that have started to show up. Basically, even the Chinese are like, yeah, okay. So this is what you need to understand before I read this. All these countries, all our countries, have backdoor conversations going on all the time that they don't talk about in front of you and me and to the media with. Constantly. In some ways, it's like WWF wrestling in the 1980s, where you got Hulk Hogan and the Iron Sheik beating each other up in the ring, and behind the scenes, they're getting pulled over in Hogan's vet doing 100 miles an hour on I-95 in Florida, smoking dope. We, we have to look like this in public, but really we get along better in private. Every country we're doing that with. Okay? With that in mind, let me read this to you. And I've been told how wrong I am by a bunch of people since I put it out. But every day is proving me more right and will continue to do so. Okay. While I'm officially on vacation, I could not leave without going on record about this. The TV keeps telling us that North Korea won't give up its nukes because they prevent regime change. I mean, if Little Rocket Man didn't have his nukes, we could just waltz in and topple him. This is the view the media has been presenting for years. The problem is, as usual with our media, it is complete and total fake news. Of course, Adolf Hitler said, tell a lie loud enough and long enough and people will believe it. But let's examine simple facts. The Korean War ended in a ceasefire on July the 27th, 1953. North Korea tested its first claimed successful nuke on May 25, 2009. They did an earlier test in 2006, which even they admitted failed. This means from 1953 to 2009, North Korea had exactly zero nuclear capability, and yet the U.S. never invaded them or affected any sort of regime change. One reason of many is very simple. With zero nuclear weapons, North Korea has enough conventional long-range weapons turned on Seoul, South Korea to literally level it in about 45 minutes. Yes, U.S. air power, smart weapons, and counter-artillery could take a lot of it out, but by then the damage would be done to trillions of dollars and at the cost of tens of thousands or even perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. Additionally, North Korea is aligned with China, and they know we won't risk war with China unless it's absolutely necessary. This standoff kept the Kim regime in power for exactly 55 years, nine months and 28 days without having any nuclear capability whatsoever. So shocking, I know, but the media is once again lying to you in complete denial of the facts. So this leads to an obvious question. Why would North Korea provoke the West by acquiring nuclear weapons in the first place? We are told at a minimum it further protects them from U.S. aggression. But Asian nations, including North Korea, are always far more strategic. So simply, let me ask you, What does North Korea want? Well, they want what they've wanted since the death of Kim Tu-sung, normalized relations with the world. The problem was before that, what did the world want in return? Two things mainly. One, get rid of the prison camps. Two, stop pointing enough artillery at Seoul to level it. Okay, well, either of those things really do threaten the regime. North Korea can't exist without the camps. The regime would end up dragged through the streets and murdered Gaddafi-style in a year at most once the threat of the camps was gone. 
leading to a refugee crisis and likely a new military dictatorship, also not friendly to the U.S. History shows this to be how most dictators fall, only to be replaced by new dictators. Also, taking the guns off Seoul and standing down their posture could potentially open them to attack by vastly superior forces of the U.S. and its allies. So both of those requests are no-goes. I also want to say I'm not defending the horrible prison camps in North Korea, but the truth is Kim Jong-un was born into this reality. He can't just close them. He would be toppled by his own military. He wants to survive and stay in power like all tyrants. He will do whatever makes that happen. So why get nukes? Simple, to have something you can use to cut a deal. The nukes in North Korea are barely functional. They can't launch a credible attack on the United States despite what the TV says. And yes, I do personally have confidential sources that back that up. More than one, by the way. So if you think you're the source out there, because I know my sources listen, you probably are, but you ain't alone. I'm just saying that. They could perhaps nuke Japan, and I don't say this in the article, but that's actually highly doubtful, though I can't reveal how much I know. This would result, however, in an instant annihilation of North Korea with the fire and fury Trump threatened, It doesn't give Kim Jong-un what he wants. So what does Kim Jong-un want? He wants his nation to be modernized. He wants his nation to have trade with the world. So how do you get it? You develop something you don't really need that shocks the world. Then you make a deal to give it up and return for what you actually want. In other words, the entire nuclear program was designed to get the U.S. to negotiate with them for something they could afford to give up and still keep their power. And that is why they will denuclearize. It was always the plan. I know that sounds crazy, but consider the alternative. Imagine that North Korea had never developed the nukes and wanted negotiations today. What would they be asked to do? Well, they'd be asked to take the guns off Seoul and close down the camps. It's the only answer there is. Again, they can't do that Even if Kim wants to close the camps to stay in control, it will have to be done in a series of reforms over time. I am not saying that it is moral or ethical. I am saying it is necessary for the regime to stay in power. Next, for the guns to come off Seoul, will require North Korea... This is... I, I need you to listen to this part, these next, this next paragraph, really, really carefully. Because after I finish reading the article, I'm going to tell you something else I learned today that will drive home how accurate this is. Next, for the guns to come off Seoul will require North Korea feeling the U.S. threat of invasion is not really there anymore. In denuclearizing, they will effectively neuter the rhetoric of the West. In other words, giving up those few pathetic sad nukes that are truly useless in reality strengthens their position. Then they still have their camps, which they can scale back even as people become happier with North Korea and more stuff, and above all, more food. Even the most modest reforms will be praised by the West, especially South Korea, Japan, and EU nations. They can then begin, this is so important, they can then begin to redirect military assets while maintaining a very strong, though less directly threatening military Each tiny bit they give in this point forward seriously weakens U.S. ability to marshal other nations to oppose a new North Korea. So there you go. North Korea will denuclearize and will change dramatically from, um, at minimum, 
an economic standpoint, and it's going to happen fast. Kim knows Trump could lose re-election in just a few years, and this opportunity could pass. The next guy likely won't be a deal-maker. He also knows he can make this deal, cement his power, and likely this deal will guarantee that he will, he will be dealing with Trump until 2024, as it will cement Trump's re-election. My prediction, by the end of 2018, the Korean War will officially end. And North Korea will either be fully denuclearized or will have 100% agreed to it. And the process will be well into motion. Frankly, the North Korean nuclear program is a lot like Reagan's Star Wars program. Remember that for later. There is something there, but most of it doesn't work. Most of it will never work, but it makes a hell of a negotiating tactic. Doubt me if you wish, but an actual logical analysis that stops assuming Kim is insane makes all of this the most likely scenario. Note, this article is a logical evaluation of the reality we are observing. It is free from my personal political opinions. It has nothing to do with support or opposition to Trump. It's just a logical and factual analysis. The mainstream media should give that a try sometime. So, here's the key. This is so important. This is what I said to pay attention to. Speaking of North Korea, I said they can then begin to redirect military assets while maintaining a very strong, though less directly threatening, military force. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what else came out today? North Korea has agreed to remove 1,000 pieces of artillery that are located just north of the DMZ, pointed at Seoul, to remove them. Now, what does the U.S. agree to do? Stop our joint military training operations with South Korea which no matter what we've said have always been based on the concept of a renewed war with the North. And we can say it's for defensive, but if you are them, it's very easy to see it as offensive capability. Okay? So that's, that's what we've given. We've given them a meeting, and we've said we'll, we'll stand down a little bit. For Kim to begin to remove some of his military assets, he's still not, not going to fold it all up and go away. He's not going to not have anything pointed at Seoul, but to do something that dramatic, he needs political cover within his own country. See, we think, well, he's a dictator, he's in charge. Every dictator, no matter how evil, no matter how totalitarian, has to have political cover in their own nation. There's a whole lot more people than you when you're that dictator. So he needed political cover. Well, the U.S. giving him a meeting gave him political cover. The U.S. saying, okay, we'll stop these, these uh, operations and training operations for now. It gives him cover to pull those artillery pieces back without creating a coup. And it, it creates this kind of chain effect. But here I am, 13 days ago, saying, as this goes forward, and we give them assurances that we're not going to invade their country, they will begin redeploying their assets. And today, they announced they're redeploying and in removing a thousand, a thousand pieces of artillery. We ain't even in July yet. And I'm telling you, this process will be well underway, if not complete, by the end of the year. It's going to move that fast. It's going to move fast enough that everybody will have to accept it, whether they want to or not. It gets wailing and gnashing of teeth before the midterms. Because trust me, right now, if you're Kim Jong-un and you can, you can throw a lateral to Trump and get him reelected when he's willing to deal with you and no one else was, you're going to do it. The, and there's a guy that posted on the blog, and you can look in the comments of that article, and there's a link to it today, that, hey, they're already up in their, 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 their tourist game in North Korea. Everybody's in on this. 
Everybody always knows this is going to happen. I'm going to tell you exactly what it's like. And it's probably where Trump will go next. Cuba. See, we could have made the kind of deals we're making with North Korea much easier with Cuba 20 freaking years ago in the Clinton administration. You want proof? Okay, go get a book, if you doubt me, called Where Have All the Leaders Gone by Lee Iacocca, who wrote this. And Iacocca, of course, was a guy who turned Chrysler Corporation around. A lot of rumbling was made about he should run for president in the 80s. He was very good friends with President Reagan, even though he was more a Democrat than a Republican. He wrote this book called Where Have All the Leaders Gone? He tells a story in this book. He ended up going to Cuba to meet with Castro. He ended up in the back of a car hauling ass with some soldiers out to a pigeon field to go shooting pigeons with Fidel Castro. He says in the book, holy shit, I'm in the back of a car with a bunch of guns with Castro. What am I doing? And they went out and shot pigeons and nothing bad happened. And in the end, Castro said, I'll, I'll remember USSR had fallen apart. Cuba was there on its own. There's a whole thing called How Cuba Survived Peak Oil. They had their own peak oil, peak everything when, they, when the rug got pulled out by the Soviets and they had to stand on their own and they had this embargo from the U.S. They were screwed. And Fidel Castro said, I will give the United States anything it wants. See, the United States wants boogeymen. They want, and I'm not saying these people are nice guys, but they want something to hold up as, oh, we need justification for all the shit we do. Well, Trump, the deal maker, sees these things and goes, what the hell are we doing? Oh, I can use this. This makes me look good. And we stop this nonsense. I, I predict that not only will he be successful in Cuba, that he'll turn, uh, in, in, in North Korea, he's going to turn to doing a deal with Cuba in, in the next year, in 2019. And people say, well, it'll cost him Florida. No, it won't. It's been long enough, and the way it will be done, no, it won't, and Fidel's dead. Raul's in charge now, that type of thing, and he'll get something. That's one thing about Trump and his deals, whether you like him or not, he gets something in return for what he does. So I'm not saying take that one to the bank. That's just a, a kind of run-of-the-mill prediction, but I'm saying 100%. This deal with North Korea is a done deal. Everybody already knows it. Everybody's in on it. The only people that didn't get the memo yet is the press because they can't accept it because of a condition known as TARD which is, of course, Trump anger resistance disorder. And I believe this has gone on so long now that the people that have it, that haven't shaken it yet, have now moved on to recurrent extreme Trump anger resistance disorder. Okay. Now, moving on to the next thing, um, it's amazing how all this shit kind of fits together here. So the other thing that Trump has said is he wants a space force. Now, I need to explain something before I play this little video clip for you. This also is not pro-Trump or anti-Trump. This has nothing to do with Trump. If you think this is Trump's idea to have a space force, you ain't been paying attention for a long time. This goes back to SDI, i.e. Star Wars, which you'll hear about in this piece. And it's been around that long, and it was one of those things that didn't really make sense to actually do, at least in the minds of the people in power, till now. But this isn't Trump's idea. Trump didn't conceive of this. And, and, and this Space Force isn't designed to protect us from aliens or something like that. It's actually about anti-missile defense and something called hypersonic missiles. 
you haven't heard of hypersonic missiles? Well, listen in, folks. Listen to this little piece, and you'll hear all about hypersonic missiles. Okay, folks, with all the stupid memes about a potential space force, I thought I should point out why we would possibly want one. The reality is it would be a fulfillment of the SDI program. Now, I do realize that many of you are too young to know what SDI was. It was known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, also known as Star Wars, under President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Now, say what you want, but SDI, frankly, just the mere threat of SDI is what brought the USSR to the table and led to the largest de-escalation of nuclear weapons in the history of mankind. And it was the Soviet attempt to keep pace with the U.S. militarily that led to their eventual collapse and breakup. That led to a free Lithuania, Ukraine, Estonia, a reunified Germany, the fall of the Iron Curtain, etc. That is all fact, folks, not opinion. It is history, and some of us are old enough to remember the nuclear drills and hiding under our desks at school. We also remember things like the miniseries, The Day After. You see, in the 1970s and 80s, the threat of nuclear war and an end to mankind was very real. Now, in 2018, nations like China and Russia are developing hypersonic missiles. This means faster than Mach 5, or 3,800 miles per hour. Defense systems like our THAAD system are useless against such things, as are all of our most advanced missile systems. The anti-missile systems in use today intercept missiles when they are in terminal fall. In other words, for all practical purposes, just before impact. Our hit rate and tests on these is about 50%, so we generally shoot two interceptors at every threat, which mostly results in 100% success, well, on paper anyway. With hypersonic missiles, that rate falls to near zero. Additionally, many of these missiles carry multiple warheads. Some Russian ones carry, say, ten so a rocket goes into space and begins re-entry, and upon doing so, one target becomes ten. Each of those ten warheads now has a different target it intends to hit, so Russia or China could send just five of these and potentially have 50 nuclear detonations as a result on U.S. soil. This could be potentially the 50 largest cities in the United States with only five missiles. Got it? Good. The only way to build a shield against such technology is to be able to take out these ICBMs in space while they're still intact. The Space Force is for that, not fighting imaginary enemies from beyond the moon, or other things like that. Now it is important to understand that I'm not saying we either should or should not do this. I am not defending or attacking the concept. I am providing you something very rare today actual facts about the situation that you can now consider for yourself. So at least now you can do something even more rare than being given facts today. You now have the opportunity to consider the actual facts when forming your own actual independent opinion on the matter. To use this information as a starting point, to do more research, verify what I have said, Learn more and use logic to form your own opinion. For this reason, I have not given my opinion here at all. We call that journalism, where you simply provide the facts. On that note, I will say this in closing. If Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton had proposed this, CNN, 
MSNBC, CBS News, and every other fake news outlet out there would think it was a great idea. And they would be giving you the facts I just did to back it up. Again, what I've provided you today is fact, not opinion. And in fact, I'll repeat, I did not even give my opinion. Still, I expect to be attacked now for a position I have not even taken, such as the world we live in in 2018. Okay, folks, so that's the reality there. That's the reality behind why... Now, that doesn't mean we should do this, okay? That doesn't mean I think it's imperative. I, it doesn't mean that I think the Russians really are going to nuke us or the Chinese are really going to nuke us. But if you have the potential long-term of a war with either Russia or China or any other nation that eventually develops this capability, and you have missiles that travel beyond Mach 5 and multiple warhead deployment missiles that are you know, virtually non-interceptable by, by programs like that and more advanced programs in, in our military, then what do you do? And the reality is a space-based system has the potential. Not See, this is why you not necessarily should do it, right? Even if you believe it's valid and even if you believe it's the only way to do something about it, Will it actually be successful? Will it actually be, like, will the technology evolve faster than the anti-ballistic technology can be deployed? Will we end up with hypersonic missiles that never go into space, for instance? Would be, you know, low-flying, hypersonic, nuclear-capable missiles. Now your space force is useless. Unless you develop some sort of laser-based technology, you can take them out before they launched or as they launched. Well, I mean, you're trying to hit a bullet with a bullet. And the laser-based technology we have today is not sufficient to work. Uh, it takes a long time, a lot of contact with a stationary object at relatively close range, but we're, we're building other things. Or would the space program lead to things like they call Rod of God, which I won't get into, but another type of technology would be space-to-ground technology that would effectively be a deterrent from these other nations using their nuclear capability, because not only would they suffer a nuclear counter-strike, that even if we were completely taken out land-based, then space we could still destroy them. And up the ante of mutual assured destruction. Is that See, I'm not giving you opinions on any of this. This is where all this leads. And it's how we need to start dissecting information. And I'll leave this subject and move to the next one. The next one I want to talk about, because I'm tired of this from this audience, and I don't mean directly to me. I mean, I watch you guys in social media, and I see you do this all the time, and I want you to stop it. Because I don't believe that you're helping your cause when you use a fallacy to try to make your case. Specifically the fallacy known as ad hominem. It seems ridiculous to me that I have to explain what an ad hominem fallacy is. This seems like something we should learn in school, but we don't. We don't learn about fallacies in school, do we? Unless we have an enlightened teacher who's probably eventually going to get fired anyway. So a fallacy ad hominem means that I tell you something, and you tell someone that doesn't like me that you got that information from me. And they say, well, that comes from Jack Spirico. He's a quack. Therefore, what he says is wrong. And you say, okay, wait a minute, but Jack said this is true and verifiable, and here's his source. So if you disagree, provide me information 
that counters these facts. And the person says, he's just an idiot and you can't trust anything he says. So he must be wrong. That's a fallacy ad hominem. In other words, you can't argue the facts or you don't want to argue the facts. Now, I do think there is some validity in questioning the source of information. But if the source of information is providing fact, logic, reason, solid rhetoric, which is a word we've made a bad word, it's not a bad word, it's one of the three components of the trivium, which is true classical education. So solid rhetoric backed by logic. Then, then you need to say, well, at least they put together a compelling argument. Doesn't mean they're right. If you watch some of the Looney Tune uh, documentary type crap that people put together to say the earth is flat... You can see how it sucks the less intelligent, lower IQ person into it because they can actually build a somewhat logical case for something highly illogical. But if they if, if that case is built and it's not something completely stupid like the earth is flat and you want to counter it, then you counter it with information. Now, a website that does a pretty good job of this is Snopes. And I see all the time these pictures and it's supposed to be a bunch of like old Arab dudes marrying four-year-old little girls or something like that. So you research it, and the first thing that pops up is Snopes. And when you research it, that's not what's happening. And then that article has multiple sources and links that say, here's what really happened. Here's the source of this information. Here's the first place this popped up is a lie. Here's the source of that lie. Here's where it actually came from. Here's the original picture without something cropped out of it. So you present that piece of information, and what do you hear? Snopes is run by two leftists and their cat, and you can't trust anything they say. That's called a fallacy ad hominem. Because you've ignored all the supporting evidence because you don't like the source, and you don't like its counter to your perception bias. Stop this shit. If you actually think Snopes is wrong about their counter-argument, provide your own factually-based, to-the-core, solid counter-argument based on facts, and stick to the core issue being debated. And, and that's what it is. Are you even arguing the core argument? Here's some other bullshit that's going on right now, and I'll show you how the core argument makes it all go away and be meaningless. Sarah Sanders got kicked out of some little restaurant, and I'm going to boycott it. Where are you from? I'm from Florida. Have you ever been to Virginia? No. Okay, then you're not boycotting a restaurant in Virginia that you didn't even know about until Sarah Sanders got kicked out of it. Right? The core argument there is, does a private business owner have a right to refuse service to anyone? Now, I know, but the Supreme Court and this baker and oh my God, shut up. Principles over preference. In your opinion, regardless of all the fluff and puff, private businesses should or should not have a right to refuse service to anyone for any reason. If you say they should not have a right, fine, back that up with fact. But what you're advocating then is slavery. Forcing me to provide service to someone I don't want to provide service to against my will, even for compensation, is a form of slavery. The entire point of being a free person or a freeman is that I can say, I do what I want to do. Now, if you are a public servant, you're taking taxpayer money, those rules don't apply to you because you have agreed to serve in that capacity of serving the public. A business that serves the public is not a public service. Okay? It's not a government service. So government employers and all, they should be subject to all kinds of controls because you're doing it with money you took from those people and it's just other people. So you've got to be equal to everybody. If I'm running Jack's Five and Dime 
And I don't want to serve you because I don't serve ugly people. And in my opinion, you're ugly. I shouldn't be able to let you in. That's horrible. And that's against the law. Really? Okay. Be an average looking guy without a fistful of money and try to get into an exclusive nightclub in Miami on Friday. Go right now. Go get set up and go do it. And show me you getting into that red robed velvet carpet and you're just a dude without a bunch of money. Go ahead. Get in. Now, show me a hot chick that's broke and she'll go right in that door, won't she? This is already done all over the place. And when it, it's not something that's been politicized, we don't care. So what do I think about Sarah Sanders getting turned down? I don't care. Am I going to do anything about it? No. I just did all I'm going to do about it. I pointed out the stupidity of it. Do I think it's terrible? I can't believe she tweeted about it. I think it's fine that she tweeted about it. She was treated like crap by a business, and she said, hey, this business treated me like crap. You should know. And she was actually much nicer than that about it. She did it with some real grace, honestly. It says more about them than it does about me. I always try to put this stuff aside when it comes to being you know, personal between people, something like paraphrasing. Right? But am I going to say, I'm going to boycott the red barn? No, because I was never going to go there. I don't go to Virginia. And you sound stupid when you say you are. But you notice how it all works out this way now? I'm not outraged. And I wasn't outraged when the baker told the two gay dudes he wouldn't make them a cake. Principle over preference. If I was a baker that made cakes and two gay dudes were having a wedding and came to me and said, would you make us a cake? I don't think that I'm contributing to gayness. I have people that want something and I'm an artist and I'll make it for them. But I think I should have the right not to. So when Sarah Sanders gets the bounce, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not going to care. And you shouldn't either. Check the temperature of your pool. You'll find it has not changed. All right, moving on. I got a segment now called Jack is a Jerk. Dug in, dug in again, and why it makes me happy. Um, this one comes from, who does this come from? Jeremy? Yeah, Jeremy says, Jack, you're such a jerk. You never warned me that in addition to the betterment Oh, okay, sorry. Jack, you're such a jerk. You never warned me that in addition to the basement full of food, bank account I have full of cash now, and life full of life no longer full of low-grade stress, I'd have to live with my wife saying regarding the fourth year of our side yard food forest, quote, you know, you were right about this after all. You had a vision, and now I finally see it, end quote. From now on, because you're a jerk, I'm going to have to live with that hanging over my head. Always feeling the pressure to be right on something else. No more making shit up on the fly and hoping for the best. I'll have to think things through, plan stuff out, update my plans in response to changes. All because she now expects me to know what I'm doing. Thanks a lot, jerk. Hope you got absolutely nothing accomplished while on vacation. Jeff in New England. P.S. Food Forest consists of two nanking cherry bushes, strawberries, hops, an elderberry thicket, two immature pear trees, one productive peach tree, and a hefty helping of horseradish, wildflowers, comfrey, plantain spread all over. Dude, that sounds awesome. I am happy to be the jerk that's responsible for your wife now expecting you to know what the hell you're doing. Guys, that's what following TSP methodology does. And I know we started out with kind of a lot of political, newsy stuff today, but It, it still works. It's the same thing. It's logical thought 
doing the right thing the right way. We're going to be a bit long in the show today because I've been gone for so long. I feel I owe it to you guys to get a lot covered today. So I'm also going to go short with that one. And uh, thanks for letting us know. Next comes from Crystal. Crystal says, uh, good morning, Jack. Question. How does a paleo-type diet such as yours fit into store what you eat and eat what you store? Before your trip, I sent some feedback about paleo, and I asked for some details about your personal flavor of paleo. In the past couple of weeks, I've gone down a rabbit hole listening to older episodes, and that got me thinking. For those of us who basically eliminated shelf-stable processed food from our daily lives, how do you store what you eat and eat what you store? Thanks, and welcome back, Crystal. Well, Crystal, great question. I actually did an, an entire show on this. I'll try it a couple times, I think. I'll try to find those for you and put it in the uh, show notes so you can take a listen to those episodes. Um, I think I did one on permaculture that kind of addressed this too called paleoculture, the original permaculture. But if, if you, if we, let's, let's stop thinking in rice and beans mentality for a moment. And, and let's sit back and ask, how do we as people in modern world store food? And we store food through refrigeration, which is actually a fairly short term except for very few things. We store through root cellaring and any type of artificial means that we can come up with root cellaring. We store through fermentation, both alcoholic and lacto. We store through drying, dehydrating, curing, and smoking. We smoke, uh, store through freezing. We store through canning. And we store through the dry storage of easily stored dry goods. And this is the one that most people default to when they start storing stuff for the long term, the dry storage of dry goods. If we take beans, you can, yeah, you can get a Mylar bag, and you can stick it inside a food grade bucket. And you can stick a, a big old O2 absorber in there, and if you're smart, you use a uh, hand warmer, right? Because did you know a hand warmer is a big O2 absorber? It is, just trust me. If, if you really have questions about it, ask me, but I've covered that in the past. But uh, the little hand warmers you get for hunting, they're, they're just big O2 absorbers. Same exact thing. And then that'll shrink up that Mylar bag. You can you know seal that with a with a, a, a iron and it, put those pinto beans in that bucket, and then that thing will suck up that bag all nice and tight and take all the oxygen out of it. And you can put a gamma lid on that five-gallon bucket. You don't know what that is. That's a ring, and it's got a screw top, so you when you stick an O2 absorber in your bucket, you can still get the lid off because it unscrews. Uh, you can screw it back shut again, right, so you can put one of those on. You can do all that shit. And, yeah, your pinto beans will last a long time. But if you take a bunch of pinto beans and stick them in a five-gallon bucket and throw a lid on it, they'll last longer than you can imagine without doing any of that shit. Seriously. And because of that, that's where our mind goes. Rice and grains and dry legumes have been historic stores of wealth for the majority of civilization. The first forms of, of paper currency were grain bills. So I could trade currency in large amounts, and the grain was in a, uh, a big silo or someplace protected by the state or the state's proxy. And then I had this thing that said I had 5,000 bushels of it bequeathed to me. And then I could use that as money with others that could go cash in a portion of it. And it's why we went to that type of agriculture, because it put the state in power. Because you could take enough caloric density to keep people alive on porridge and put it into one place. So we're still stuck with that in our minds. 
But the majority of indigenous peoples that are hunter-gatherers and were hunter-gatherers before we eradicated most of them, uh, in general had very little of this type of goods that they stored. They lived a very primal paleo life. Isn't that amazing? And they didn't have such abundance year-round that storing stuff wasn't necessary. So they developed methods of, of storing beef meat by drying and curing it and making products like the North American Indians made using fat and berries to make it more diverse like pemmican. So there's actually nothing odd about having food stored that is primal paleo. We salt fish. We smoke fish and salt fish. We cure meats. It's, so there's all types of ways that we can do that that don't require refrigeration. And then, hey, we're prepared. Now, I don't think most preppers give up their car, and I don't think you should either. In fact, people like Stephen Harrison and I teach you to go get a really good inverter for $50 to $100 bucks and use your car as a generator when your power's out, right? So we're not going to throw away the baby with the bathwater, so to say. So when we look at something like a freezer, we're not going to get rid of a freezer. We might buy a second freezer. What we're going to do now is make sure that if the power fails, we can keep that freezer running so we don't lose all the stuff in it. Well, now, instead of growing a dry bean, we grow a green bean, we blanch it and flash freeze it, and we have a perfectly acceptable food in our freezer. We can do that with broccoli. We can do that with just about every vegetable. Many of those same vegetables can be dehydrated. Once they're dehydrated, we throw them in a ball jar and either use our little uh, vacuum sealer or we use something like a dry canner, and we can seal those in, in, in glass jars. That's all totally acceptable stuff in the primal paleo world. Uh, we can go and we can buy a half a steer like I do from my neighbor every year and freeze it in our freezer as long as we know we can keep it. You see what I'm saying? And, and then we are eating what we store and store what we eat. And I'm paying $3 a pound for beef, grass-fed beef from down the road. I'm paying three, I'm going to say that again. I'm paying $3 a pound for it. Even when I'm done with the processing fee, I'm paying about $3.60 a pound for beef from my neighbor. So I'm getting the opportunity by. I'm driving down the price. You can't buy good ground freaking hamburger for $3.60 a pound. The guy lives a mile down the road from me. When I go hunting, I put stuff in the freezer. And I don't see that as a conflict. Remember, we're not preparing for Armageddon here. We're not preparing for the end of the world. If the end of the world hits, these people that have bunkers and 80 years worth of MREs are probably going to be just as screwed as the rest of us. We're preparing for the disasters that actually hit in our lives. And we're trying to drive down the cost of a living while living a better life at the same time. I'm going to sit down tonight and eat a beautiful piece of ribeye steak. And this one's not even from the neighbor. This one's from Butcher Box. And in the end, it's still costing me less than if I went out and bought it at Whole Food Markets and got something of equal quality. And then we're bringing all these different components into our lives. How do we store meat and don't do anything? Well, for raising rabbits, we store meat on the hoof. We feed rabbits with a, uh, a, 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 a bag uh, lawnmower and grow ryegrass and feed them ryegrass. When I was in Florida, there's little cottontails all over the place on Sanibel Island now. They have like a rabbit plague as far as I'm concerned. They eat grass. I don't need to store the meat. I just don't kill it until I need to eat it. 
Well, we're building aquaponic systems. We can extend our season with cloches and greenhouses so that we're not so much storing the food but constantly growing something. I only have about two months out of the year where it's really hard to grow something. So if we take this more holistic view, more holistic approach, then, hey, things get a lot better. And we can can meat. If we really want some meat that we can you know, use long, we can can meat, we can dry meat, we can buy long-term storable meat. Up in my attic, I guess you it's not really an attic, my upstairs storage area, um, I have Mountain House, 25-year storable cubes of beef, cubes of chicken, ground beef, ground sausage. I have canned Yoder's bacon. And every once in a while we pull one of those down and we use it, and then we replace it, and we keep that rotated. Because it's good quality stuff. So all we're doing is looking for storable versions of things that aren't high in starch. You know, I mean, it, it really is that simple. And then some of the things that we eat that I think you'd consider not so paleo would be things like sweet potato. We eat the Japanese purple sweet potatoes. I have them in every one of my tanks. They take up almost no space because they grow out and over with their vines. We eat the vines as greens all year long. And in the winter, I don't even pull them out of the tanks. These are my, my, my soil tanks, right? These are uh, my wicking beds. And throughout the winter, as I need one, you know, we don't eat them a lot because even those are still on some high level of carbohydrate. But, you know, maybe one a week, just go out, stick my hand during the dirt, and pull one out. And then in the spring, the ones I don't get grow back. So there's a lot that we can do. So it's a good question. It's just not the problem I think a lot of people think it is. We just have to rethink things a little bit. And again, I'll try to find an episode or two where I've talked about this in more depth for you, Crystal, and put it in the show notes. I have a question here from Bill. Bill asked a question for Stephen Harris, and I decided not to send it to him because he was going to go all kinds of Harris. He's done it before on this question. What jump starter do you recommend? Recently during a fishing trip, uh, I recently had a fishing tip scrap because the battery died. Battery is only five months old, started five weeks ago. This morning went to fire it up prior to heading to launch and no go. Would have been bad if this happened miles offshore. Been thinking of getting one of the jump starters to have in the car, be able to put in a boat when I head out, but not see one you recommend on solar1234.com. Thanks in advance, Bill. Well, Stephen would say, if you rely on a jump starter for your boat, you're going to die waiting for the Coast Guard that you can't call because you don't have the radio I recommended. And to be fair to Stephen, I, I kind of agree there. If you are going to rely on having a boat be able to get back to shore that you're offshore with. First of all, I think if you're going offshore in the in like in the ocean that your boat should have two motors. Okay. And 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 I would go as far as having a completely separate battery that I have chested and have charged up like, you know, a, a deep cranking battery uh, that I could hook up and use to start my boat if it was if it was that. Um so Let's leave the boat out of this right now. Um, what you need is a good charger um, to make sure your boat batteries stay charged and a good minding charger, uh, which we can talk about in another episode because that's not really what you're asking about. But the jump starter, I think, is a valid vehicle prep. And I don't know how much help a lot of your boats, by the way, are 24-volt systems, too, when it comes to cranking and trolling motors. So you need to make sure of that as well. But here's why the Harris gets all angry about these things and says they're worse than useless. Because they eventually die. They don't have as much power as people think. People drive around with a car that has a problem. 
And they don't see the problem in replacing the battery. Because they figure the jump starter will, will save them, and then when it's not sufficient to start the vehicle, they're stuck when they wouldn't have been otherwise. Well, if you do that, yeah, that's the case. Um, I have used them, and I find them to be very useful in many situations. Most of them have additional backup power capability that's nice for doing small things here and there, uh, and you never know when you can use one and need one. The, uh, the best of them are ones that you can keep in the vehicle basically charging at all times, one way or another. In my Jetta, I actually had a 12-volt plug in the trunk, and I had my charging thing strapped down back there, and it was constantly plugged into that 12-volt. And as long as the car was running, if it needed any power, it was giving it power. That was the Power Dome EX, which they don't make anymore. And eventually that unit no longer would hold a charge. Because it's a battery, and all batteries eventually won't hold a charge, right? There's no infinite battery yet, so there's we need to check them and test them, and you know, etc. The other thing I believe belongs in your vehicle kit is a a a, a set of very high quality jumper cables, long ones, because the best way to jump a vehicle is with another vehicle if you have one available. You don't always have one available, and sometimes getting one to where you can reach it even with long cables is difficult. Then the other thing you need to understand with these jumper boxes and what have you is, for instance, I drive an F-350. It uses two batteries, and it needs a lot of power to crank it over. It's got to heat up the glow plugs, all of that stuff. These packs, generally vehicles that require two batteries to start, uh, one battery less than half the size of the one of, of one of their two batteries, generally ain't going to turn them over. So if we're going to rely on these, The best time is when the battery got worn down for some reason, somebody left a light on or something like that, and it ain't completely dead yet. You get in the car and it goes, and you stop, stop. When that happens, if you have any means of alternative power, don't let it go. Once you hear the first, stop. There's power in there. It's enough to kind of turn it over. And, and I've even had, because some dummy, I won't say who he is, but his name starts with a J and it ain't Jack, Uh, left my back door open and left the, the cargo light on, and my truck's old enough it doesn't have one of those things where it recognizes that eventually shuts it off, and it ran the batteries down to it was like that. I hooked up the Power Dome EX, I waited a few moments, boom, 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 started, charged back up. Not always going to work with a big truck like that. Your smaller passenger cars, typical trucks like an F-150 or something usually they'll work and they'll start as long as they're in good operating order. So within the limits of their capability is, is, is what you have to use these for as an extra. They're, they're, they're basically, your, your one is, you know, two is one and one is none, and they're kind of your three is for me, really, in that line of thinking, that third level. So if you have no plan, that's your, your one is none. My truck starts or it doesn't. Uh, your, your two, you know, two is one and one is none. Your two is that good quality set of jumping cables. Because you probably can find somebody somewhere to help you. Though I've been in a situation where I've got cables, I've got a dead vehicle, I'm at a Walmart with people left and right, and I had to ask 15 people before somebody said yes, because everybody thought I was going to try to slit their throat or something. I don't know. And uh, so, you know, if you have that power pack, you can always try it first. If it works, you go on about your way. With having one, I've been in situations where someone will say, hey, man, you got jumper cables. What's the matter? My car won't start. You look at your car, and you got a little passenger car. Is it got any power at all? Like, will the lights come on? Yeah, it just won't turn over. Okay, I'm not even pulling my vehicle around. I'll be right there. Grab my power pack, boom, start up. 
So I've used it to help more people than myself. And it's just more convenient and easier. This is what they're good for. The one that I recommend, and I have not made this an item of the day yet, and I probably should, it's the JNC770 Jump Starter. Um, it's got an A grade on FakeSpot. It's got lots of reviews. It's got some negative reviews. Why? Because people don't listen to people like me and Stephen Harris and expect things to do things they're not capable of doing. That's the main reason. And because anything with a battery could be a lemon. So when you get one, give it a run-through. And if you got a problem with it, return it and get it freaking replaced. All right? It's, it's somewhat, I wouldn't call it little brother, it's younger brother, right? You got little brothers and younger brothers. Like, if you got like six brothers and you're like 20 and your younger brother's 18, it's kind of like that, is the JNC 660. It's got a B grade on Fake Spot, and I think it's just because it's got so many reviews. The Fake Spot algorithm's a little bit skeptical. It's like 5,000 reviews generally positive. Again, some people don't understand the limitations of these devices. And either one of those I would recommend. And the 770 would be the one I think is worth a couple extra bucks and the one that I'd recommend you use. Pretty much, though, you can look at the cranking amps, you can look at the reserve power if you understand how to read battery stuff and know sizing it to your vehicle. They're all good for what they're good for, which is a emergency backup that might help you, not will help you. As long as you can get another person and all you have is a dead battery, jumper cables will help you. Power packs might help you, but in most instances, the might is a will, and the convenience is far above jumper cables. So that's why I think they make a lot of sense. But if I did not have either one in my vehicle, I would spend good money on a good set of jumper cables first, and I would add this as that secondary level second. So Stephen and I disagree, but we agree. I just see the value there, I think, more than he does. Um, next, uh, Monsanto is dead. The Monsanto name is dead, 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 dead. And there's an uh, article that somebody sent me. It says, Rip Monsanto the agricultural giant Americans love to hate. I'm not going to read that article to you, but I'm going to give you a little bit of information that I got from it and, and my opinion about the whole thing. So for those that have not paid attention to this, Bayer, who we think of as the aspirin people, pharmaceutical company, you've often heard me when I rail against GMOs and commercial agriculture and chemical agriculture specific, say Monsanto, Conagra, and Bayer. In that order. And, and, and those three are your biggest defenders, though there's a hell of a lot more companies. Bayer basically has a division of their company that's in this ag chem market and a division of their company that's in the pharmaceutical market. So overall, even though their ag presence was smaller than Monsanto, they're a bigger, they were a bigger corporation. And in the world of American capitalism, big fish eat little fish, Bayer bought out Monsanto. And they're basically looking for dominance in the space, which they certainly now have. And when, when this happens, there's a couple different things that can happen. When one company buys another, they can maintain both companies as existing companies. And Monsanto becomes a subsidiary of Bayer. Um, they can maintain the brands even if they absorb them into the company. So Bayer dissolves the Monsanto Corporation into itself, but maintains the... Monsanto brand, 
So, so for instance, if you made uh, John's Widgets and um, ABC Widget Company bought you out, they could continue to sell ABC Widget products, but if the John's Widget brand was really strong and had loyalists, they could maintain the John's Widget brand even though the John's Widget LLC went away. They could take products and continue to label them even though they're not even run as a separate brand anymore. They're just basically a, a item title. But what's most common is one of the names is used, the other name goes away. Now, there's a lot of reasons to use the name Bear here, um, and that's because it's better known is the biggest one. It has more goodwill. If I say Bear, you don't think, and you know I'm not talking about a four-legged animal, you don't think chemicals and stuff like that. Generally, when you say bear, most people think aspirin. They think of a drug company. And even though we have some pretty negative views of pharmaceutical companies in this community, with good reason, um, they do do some good. They do save lives. And in general, most people in America have a fairly decent view of pharmaceutical companies, specifically not the ones you see advertised on TV every day where the list of side effects is longer than the list of things that they help you with. Like, this will fix your skin, but it may give you lymphoma. Like, those things people have a negative view of. When you say bare aspirin, I don't think that's over-the-counter. And I mean, they prevent headaches and you know, take small amounts of aspirin to reduce the risk of heart attack. That's a good thing, right? So it's got goodwill and a better name recognition. And usually the fish that does the eating gets to keep its name. There's more to that here, though. Monsanto's name going away is the same thing in the network marketing industry that Amazon, uh, what's the, the one that Amway, right? Amway basically rebranded itself as Quickstar. Amway had name brand recognition beyond what most companies that are even big giant corporations have today, and they rebranded themselves as Quickstar because it was a good idea. No, because they knew that when people heard Amway, they ran. Because they knew it was a scam. Y'all tell two people, and you tell two people, and they'll tell two people. We'll all be millionaires. And you can try to defend it to me all you want, guys. Trust me, I know the industry well. And I know it's not really a scam, but it's presented as it. The way it's presented is, is scam-like. Um, so they, they went under the quick star banner for a while. And, and that's the real thing here. Monsanto is, is like a poison name. Uh, it really is. It's, it, it's an awful name. No one wants to be associated with it. So it doesn't surprise me at all that, that Bear has taken away the name. But now Bear has to make a bigger decision. Do you keep Roundup? I mean, a lot of people use Roundup. It's one of the best-selling products that uh, that Monsanto had. And, and not just to the retail market, but the wholesale market, the farmer market, I mean, ag market, big ag. People buy, buy the you know, metric shit ton. And then you know Joe's dad goes down and buys it at Home Depot to spray the dandelions in his sidewalk. Well, it has bad name, too. They'll probably keep that brand. And that's what you'll probably see of Monsanto. It'll just become a bare product. You see Roundup and things like that. But um, the big thing to understand is nothing's really changing. All the gene patenting and gene sequencing and patenting of life forms and suing farmers for patent violations because their seed got crossed, but none of that's going to go away. Um, the, the, the chem ag world is really an example of the worst forms of crony capitalism that there are. 
I'm a capitalist, but I'm certainly not a crony capitalist. And when we have basically economic fascism in this country where a company can have basically a police force that does something that a U.S. police force could never do, go on to private property to collect evidence, it is what's gone on with their seed police, basically. These people are scum. It's just worth noting that they're now called bear, but they're the same people. Um, the next one I found, when I read this while I was away, I thought I really need to talk about this. This comes from uh, Christopher. Christopher says, Jack, I vow right now to turn my financial life around. You got through to me with your rewind episodes of debt is cancer and what debt freedom means. The details. I'm 35, and I have $1,009.82 of credit card debt. Not a lot, but it needs to go. I have a $16,000 in a vehicle loan with three years left on it. Not great, but I can pay it uh, easy enough. The bad, I have roughly $1,600 to my name right now in liquid assets. I need to change. My wife and son deserve better from me. My vow is to use 10% minimum of my weekly income to pay all my credit cards, starting with my next payday coming. After that, I will put the same money into savings. My goal this time next year, I want a minimum of 4000 in savings and no credit card debt. I know that seems little, but I have to start somewhere. Thank you for the verbal ass-kicking, Jack. Enjoy the rest of your vacation, Chris from Minnesota. What I want to talk to you about, Chris, is a little joke that got made while I was on vacation and how it applies to this. And I've been saying it to the point where my wife is uh, annoyed with it at this point. So Bones and Amy, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy, came and spent a couple days with us on Sanibel Island. And the evening they got there, we decided we wanted pina coladas. I don't drink pina coladas anywhere other than Sanibel Island for two reasons. One, so I don't lose my man card. Uh, but two, I tried to make them. The bartender at Sanibel Island at this bar explained to me exactly what to do. I came home. I fancied myself a pretty good bartender. I tried to make it. It didn't work. It didn't taste as good. I don't know if it's. I don't know what it is. But we always drink some when we're there. So Bones and Amy and, and, and me and Dorothy are walking by the pool area where the bar is at our hotel, and there's like a nice little table with an umbrella in the shade, so you're not there baking in that Florida sun. And we're talking about it, and 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 so Amy and uh, Dorothy are going to go get the. Uh, pina coladas and Bones and I are going to go ahead and sit down so we kind of mentioned the whole thing that we have All I, I'm just going to come back, it's going to make sense trust me, I know I feel like I'm drifting here um, but we, we, you know, all four of us are getting a pina colada with a Myers rum floater and so Bones and I sit down and this lady that's just sitting there overheard us goes that's perfect, one team, one dream right, so our one team our one dream was to acquire four pina coladas and sit down and, and drink them together well that one team, one dream is an old statement. You know, it, it's involved teams that believe they're going to the Super Bowl. It's been said to little leaguers and Pop Warner football players and high school teams and everything above and below that level. Um, but it really is a great case, Christopher, and anybody else listening out there for how finances really need to be approached when it comes to being a family unit is one team, one dream. And I'm actually dealing with doing some counseling on this and someone that's a lot closer to me uh, than, than you are, Chris. And I don't mean geographically. I mean, well, that too, but more emotionally, uh, family level, with spending problems in one side of the family and things like that. And this is the advice that I gave that person. It's the same advice I would give you for yourself. Uh, but I would get, get the, the wife on board with it too. 
And that is, to say I'm not going to spend any money other than what we need to spend money on, our basic bills, is, is not really rational and generally doesn't work. And if, if you have the ability to save 10% of your income or pay 10% on your credit cards and you haven't been, that means you are spending non-discretionary money. And to think you're going to stop is, is not probably true. Like, I'm just going to buy nothing. What makes sense is to sit down and do your budget. This is all our non-discretionary expenses. You got to pay your mortgage. You got to pay your truck payment. If your wife has a vehicle, you got that payment. Uh, your credit cards and everything else, the, the, the minimum payment, the, all that stuff, uh, electric bill averaged out over the year, uh, average grocery bill, you've, you've got to do that. If you don't do that, you have a real problem. Again, it's non-discretionary spending. When you, when you add all that up and then you take your income, that difference becomes your discretionary income. That's money you can make a decision with. Now, you can go into your non-discretionary and maybe get rid of some of it. Because you might figure out that, well, i got to pay the cable bill as long as we have cable. Do I really want to? So that's really a discretionary spend. But as long as you have a subscription, it's in the non-discretionary pile. right? But once you've leaned that out to whatever it is it's going to be, You have a fixed number, and this is not an opinion. This is mathematics, and that's why it works, because it is math. And once you know what that number is, you can take that number and say, of that number, what's reasonable to have as pocket money? Money I can go buy a burger with, money we can go out to eat with, money I can buy a, a beer with, you know, an extra beer, in addition to what, you know, if you buy your beer with your groceries, maybe. When you're coming home from work once in a while, you stop and buy a good beer like a Chimay. Uh, that's all discretionary spending. So you then come up with that number, and then what you do is on the first of the month, you either go get half of that amount of money and then do it again on the 15th if you think you need that much control, or you get that entire amount of money in cash you put it in your pocket. You put it in your wallet, whatever. And when that money's gone... Your discretionary spending for that month is over. Now, in your model where you said you're going to take 10% of your income and put it against your debt, and then when that's gone, you're going to start saving 10% of your income, and I like that number as a minimum, I really do, that is predicated on that number surviving the reality of the math when you do it. And maybe when you do the math, you go, you know, I could do 15%, or I could do 12.5% or whatever it is. But that number goes into the non-discretionary Okay, That becomes a bill, like any other bill, even though it's more than the true non-discretionary, the part where the credit card people will inform you that they're angry with you and that you now owe penalties and interest. Okay, And the one team, one dream comes in here. If you can get a couple doing this together, it becomes very powerful. Because here's what I'm going to tell you happens. You come up with an amount of money that you're going to give yourself in cash, and no matter how much it is, you always feel like it's not enough. Man, that's all I get. Ugh. But here's what's going to happen. You decide you want something, and you pull your money out, and you count it. It's now real. This is Dave Ramsey stuff. There's stuff that Dave Ramsey's good at. His investment advice, I think, is terrible. But his debt management advice and, and things like that is fantastic. And so now i got to give up this $20 bill and this $5 bill. I'm only going to get a $1 bill back. And there was only 90 bucks here to begin with, and I got two weeks before the month ends. Do I really want to do this? 
And what happens is generally I find that people that do this is about the second or third month. They get to the end of that month and they still have some money left. And then the smart thing to do is you get a jar or a box or a drawer and you stick that extra in it and it's there if you really need it and you get your new money for the next month. And you get to the end of that month and there's some money left and you stick it there. And you start building up the second stockpile of money. And then you start realizing that you really don't want a lot of the stuff that you spend money on. You're doing it out of habit, and you're doing it because it's very easy to do with a debit card or, or a checkbook or what have you. It's a lot harder to do it with cash. It hurts more. And if you can get that one dream, one team, one dream mentality with controlling your spending, then what you're able to do is harness the greatest asset you will ever have in your life for most people, which is your income. Most people make a lot of money. And I know a lot of people think they don't, but let's do a little bit of math and see how much money you know people make in general. I, I mean, even people that are just kind of modest income earners, it, it's not uncommon at all for people to um, average about $15 an hour today. Now, I know some of you out there are making $9 an hour and you're pissed off at me right now. I'm sorry, but I'm saying, you know, you're old enough to have a family, a house, et cetera, $15 an hour. And a lot of people are making more than that when you work at their salary and their benefits and all that. But I'm saying both spouses. So you have an income, combined income kind of threshold, $30 an hour. That's $1,200 a week. And if we take that $1,200 a week and multiply it by 4.34, 4.34 is the number of weeks in a month when we average it out across 12 months. That's about $5,208 a month, which comes out to a little bit over $62,000 a year, which isn't a huge income. I acknowledge it's not. Um, assuming you never got a raise and both of you worked for 20 years, though, it'd be $1.2 million, actually $1.25 million, about $1.25 million. Um, that's a lot of money to go through and not have nothing, and a lot of people do it. And there's a lot of people out there, you know, They got one spouse in the family that's knocking down sixty grand a year, and another's knocking down as much or a little less or a little more. And in twenty years, they don't have much to show for. And then you got people that are making, you know, half that. That twenty years later have pretty decent re retirement set up and low debt. And it's all about how we win with money in life. And it, the, the reality is. People that win with money in life, whether individuals or couples, generally figure out how to win with everything else in life. And people that lose with money generally lose at most other things in life. And I'm not saying if you don't make a lot of money, you're a loser. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about winning with or losing with money. Uh, that means the money that you do have and how you manage it and control it. Because money is, is basically a symbol for energy. It's thermoeconomics is, is, is the, uh, one of the uh, schools of thought that I ascribe to. That, that All money is just a symbol for energy, and it's made it in a way where we can exchange it with other people. If you think about it one way or another, it always comes back to some amount of energy being expended. And we have a lot of discretion with what we do with our money. People that say, well, no, you don't understand, because where I live, it's really expensive to get a house. Well, you could live somewhere else. And, well, they'll have to do this. And I didn't say it was without sacrifice. There's a lot of discretion with how we handle money. Well, I only make so much. Well, there's a lot of ways to make more. Well, it's hard. Of course it's hard. But it can be done. There's a lot of discretion. 
So when we have something in our life like money where we have massive discretion about how we handle it, manage it, make it, earn it, spend it, save it, invest it, and we're unable to win there, there's a lot of things in life that come with a lot less discretion and a lot less choice. And if we can't win in a place where we have a lot of choice, we have a real poor chance of winning in a place where we have very little choice. Because we haven't trained our mind to do the right thing for the right reasons, even when it means forestalling immediate gratitude. So if you can get your wife on this plan with you, uh, Christopher, I think it'd be a great thing. It's, it's, it seemed, I'm not saying you do, but just based on the tone of your email, you have a bit of a spending problem. You're in a unique position because most I'm telling you, most guys that go to their wife with this have to say, honey, you buy too much shit. Don't say it that way ever. Never, ever, never, never, never say it that way. But that's really what's going Usually... In most relationships, I'm going to hear from angry women. Please understand, most means most, not all. Please understand that. In most relationships, the person that tends to have a spending program is the female. When it comes to buying things that really don't need, like my husband bought a bunch of guns he didn't need. I said most. Most means most, not all. Um, but in most frustrated situations, I see it's when it comes to a shopping habit, uh, it, it's marketed to women. That's why it works better on them. Um, but when you can get both parties on board in this one one team one dream model, it's amazing what we can do. So uh, I encourage you maybe to uh, to commit to it, to do it for a little bit, and then go to your wife and say, "This is what I've been doing. I'd like you to do it with me. I'd like you to check my numbers and tell me if you think I'm doing enough." It's because once she agrees that it makes sense for you to be on a spending protocol cash-in-pocket type thing with a limit, even if she doesn't have a problem, it makes sense for her to have one too. She'll probably be more than happy to do it. And again, all of a sudden you start to realize you have way more than you thought you did. Here's an interesting one. This is in response to um, a question that was asked by Christine a long time ago. This is from Rich in California. And it's Richard says... In regards to what is the opposite of a snowflake from episode 2175, to me it's a spring. Resilient, check, it will bounce back. Adjust to change, yep. If you take the time to understand it, it can do many useful things. Different types of springs, people have different talents. Take special attention to the source of materials to make one. What you do raising a child matters. The list goes on, multiple facts can be explored. Multiple chapters all reinforce the same idea. It sounded like a book idea to me uh, from the way the question was asked. Show comments mention anti-fragile, which comes a bit too close to the 1984 speak to me, but I get the idea. I'd have posted this in the show comments, but they're closed for an older show. Uh, just on that, when a post is more than 60 days old, uh, the WordPress software shuts down the comments. I might change that and make it a little bit longer, but I find that leaving comments open on things that have been posted a long time ago um, invites a lot more spam. So just that's why I've done that. Your idea of a willow makes sense, but it may go sideways. Emo on it, weeping willows, okay? Because uh, I said a willow tree. Because my, my wife always said, you know, you're like an oak. And I'm like, I prefer to think of myself more like a willow. Oaks get snapped in storms, and willows bend and yield and give, kind of like a spring. Um, uh, I don't know if you know a way to reach Christina, who asked the question, or if she's still looking for an answer. That's my two cents. I'm pretty sure that she's probably in my outlook somewhere. I'll, I'll look for it and forward this to her in case she didn't hear it. 
Uh, feel free to mention this idea on the show. We're not. It's up to you. Thanks for all you do, uh, Jack Rich in California. Um, yeah, I'll tell you that I like the idea. The idea of a spring, like teaching our children to be like a spring makes a lot of sense. You get pushed, snap back, uh, what have you. Being flexible, springs are definitely flexible, and that's why I kind of mentioned to Willow. But what I said in that episode, and I kind of feel about uh, this now still, is I don't, I don't know that we need to be labeling positive normal behavior. The reason we call these young people, and frankly a lot of middle-aged people now, snowflakes, is because what they're doing is not normal. It's not normal for a human being to need a freaking safe space because they heard the name of a person they don't like. It is not normal for a 20-something in college to need to go to a place where they can use a coloring book or pet a kitten or have a tissue handed to them because somebody didn't like won an election. This is not normal behavior. It is not normal for a 20-something-year-old a, a person who goes to work for a man like me who gives them something to do and comes back six hours later and they finished four hours ago and they're just sitting there waiting to be told what to do next without taking any initiative or at least going to me or another person in charge and saying, hey, what do you need me to do now? None of these things are normal or make sense in any way. So if we start labeling positive, normal human behavior as something, we make it a thing apart from us. So, but, but... If you're right, Rich, and she's thinking along the idea of a book about this, then we knew we do need to give it a name because it's what makes it marketable. And while I like the name Spring for the connotations it brings, I don't know how marketable it is. You know, Snowflake's pretty on the anti-marketing side, pretty marketable. It, no one's confused by what you mean when you say somebody's a snowflake, are they? They're like, oh, I get that, or a teacup kid. Like People are like, yeah, I get, I get that. Um, I don't really know what the marketable term is, but I like the idea of spring. I don't know that I like making the word a thing, though, because it, it, when we label something, we separate ourselves from it. One of the things I read while I was on vacation was uh, Larry Korn's book, the One Straw Revolutionary, which is kind of a follow-up book to the One Straw Revolution uh, from Masanuka Fukuoka, who he, he translated that version into English for all the way back in the 1970s. And one of the big things that Fukuoka was very big about with his concept of natural farming is we get away from the specialization and the way science tries to label everything and isolate everything that only by seeing things as a totality can we actually be normal and natural. And I think that like we don't really need to teach people how to be human. We just need to remove the things that are preventing that. I think that a, a human being that grows up in a natural environment that's encouraged to learn, that's encouraged to try, that's encouraged to fail in ways that don't hurt too bad, so jump off the little table before you jump off the big one since you learn your limits, that type of thing, and, and is just encouraged to naturally progress, that the way that we feel people should behave versus the way they are behave is actually pretty normal. That's why it's so sad that we've gotten into a place where people are so damn weak anymore. Because I don't think people are naturally weak. 
You can go into some of these countries that they call third world today, and these people are a lot tougher and a lot more resilient than we are. And people say it's, well, because they have to be. I think that might be true to a point, but it's, it's, it's not so much because they have to be. It's because of the absence of things that, that change that. And we've gotten to a place today where everybody's supposed to be happy all the time, and no one's ever supposed to be offended in things like that. And we can't be normal in that situation. We can't have pleasure without pain. If everything was pleasurable, pleasure would cease to matter. We can't have dark without light. If there was no darkness, there'd be nothing to compare the light to, and we'd never get any damn sleep on top of it. We can't have perfection without failure because there'd be nothing to judge it against. We can't have happy without sad. It's, it's a real simple thing. And when we start trying to eliminate everything that's uncomfortable, everything that's offensive, everything that we don't like, then we can't be natural anymore. So if there is a word for what we should be instilling in our children... Maybe it's being natural. Maybe it's being innately human. I don't know. Neither one of those seem very marketable. The natural farming worked out for Fukuoka. Um, natural parenting. Maybe that's the word. Natural parenting. It doesn't take a village. It takes a natural parent. Last question of the day comes to me from Matt. Matt says, hey, Jack, how do I train a puppy while having two small children? I want you to pay attention. When I talk about how to write a question here, this does have some details. This is textbook. It says hijack, comma, space. How do I train a puppy with, with that while having two small children? Question mark. Space, space. Details. Space. I have a four-year-old son and a six-year-old son. We live on a farm raising CSA vegetables, grass-fed beef, organic pastured pork, and chicken. I'd like to add a dog to our lives as there are many benefits to having a dog on the farm and a good companion for our boys as they grow up. We tried two years ago, couldn't break the cycle of our then four-year-old son putting his hands up to protect his face from the puppy's licks and attention. The puppy thought this was playing, so he would mouth at the flailing hands, which was then interpreted by our son as biting. This scared him into always putting his hands up when the puppy was near him. We finally had to rehome the puppy with my sister. He is now three years old and is a great all-around dog. I feel we need to start with a puppy in order to acclimate it to all our livestock while it's young. Maybe that's the wrong approach. Also just interested in general puppy raising tips while having young children so as not to screw up the dogs or the kids. Thank you, Jack, for all you've done. I hope you've earned I hope your hard earned vacation was relaxing and rejuvenating. Matt in the North Woods of Wisconsin. Let's start out with the concept of not starting with a puppy. You can do that. And it may it may be an alternative here. And it would really involve the right breed and the dog with the right predisposition. There's no doubt that about three years of age is kind of where a dog reaches a point where they settle down, if they're going to. And at about that point, they stop always being on and always being that way, you know? And even if they're affectionate, I mean, my dogs, when the kids come, they run and lick them and stuff. But then they did that, and now the kids are here, and they've been welcomed, and it's it's all good and well. Out of the three dogs we have today, only one has been raised from a puppy. 
And one, the most recent one, Lucy, is a pit bull husky. It's a very high-strung breed, if you think about those two breeds coming together. Lived on the street for months and had to hunt for her food. And we were still able to break her cycle of attacking the livestock, though it took effort and it took a, 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 a shock collar. I don't think it could have been done without the shock collar. It was too much prey drive, and it had to be really stuck to But that might be easier, especially if you start out with a dog that's less prey-driven. And here's a way that this can be determined. I don't necessarily think you should always do it exactly this way, but when we got Max, he was an 18-month-old puppy. Okay? So I say he won a puppy. Big German Shepherd at 18 months. Ain't nowhere near done growing. This dog was like 85 pounds, and he looked big already. At 18 months. The dog's 150 pounds today. So he did, did continue to grow. And our only concern was we had a cat. Actually, we had two cats at a time. Ralph and Alice. And our concern was, how would he be with the cats? So we're at the Humane Society. We find this beautiful German Shepherd. Young dog. Great life ahead of him. Seems wonderful. No discipline. Right? Doesn't sit. Doesn't stay. I'm like, I fixed that in a couple weeks. It's not hard. Um, housebroken, gets in a car when he's told to, great with kids. What about the cats? Little girl, works at the SPCA, so let's take him next door to where we keep the cats and we'll find out. Okay. So we take him over there, all the cats are in cages, and he's just interested, and there's a cat with some kittens in this cage that's down by him, and he goes toward it, and that female cat in that cage just flares at him trying to get through that cage which of course she can't get through I mean she meant to open his world up for him he kind of lays his ears back and looks at her like she's crazy like, and looks around like well, what's wrong with this cat it's like buddy you're lucky that cat is in a cage man well the little girl then goes and gets a kitten and brings it out and shows it to him and he looks at it but he's not real excited and It was actually a little bit scary for me when she did this, because this was like a kitten you can hold in one hand. She put that kitten in front of that dog's nose, and that dog licked that cat on the head. Well, he went home with us. So if you have a dog that you can show a baby chicken or duck to, and it doesn't get aggressive with it, it ain't going to get aggressive with an adult. How was Max? When we first got ducks and geese and, and stuff like that. He was always fine. And I remember we got the first goose flock, and geese goslings came the day they got here. They were out on the grass in the shade, so they didn't die. Because if you put new babies in the sun, they'll die. This sun, anyway. And I picked one of those gooses up, and I put that in front of that dog, and that dog licked that goose on the head the way he licked that kitten on the head. Charlie took training from a pup. So in the end, Max, having the right predisposition, was easier to deal with that problem than Charlie. Charlie, though, has control today because he was worked with Far above Max. Before we sent the birds off to, to other farms, um, I could have ducks and geese on the porch and say, Charlie, get the geese off the porch. He would ignore the ducks and move the geese. But it took a lot of work. Kids. Because this is your real question, right? So what I'm saying is you might be able to get a bit older of a dog if you have a predisposition and not be aggressive to livestock that's calmer for your kids. But even with puppies and stuff like that. So... How do we train the dog not to shit in the house? We take the dog and we put him outside until he goes to the bathroom. 
We're bringing him inside for a little bit. If he looks like he's sniffing around, like he's going to pee or poo or whatever, we don't get mad. We pick him up. We set him outside and let him go outside. If he dribbles a little bit or drops a turd on the way, we don't get upset. We just put him outside. We leave him outside till he's done, and we put him in the crate. He can cry. He can whine. He can moan. He can do whatever he wants, but he ain't going to pee and poop in there much because he don't want to lay in it. And the crate needs to be sized so it's not so big that he can comfortably poop on one side and sleep on the other. He comes out of that crate, he goes outside. He does his business, he comes inside for a little while, he goes in the crate. We do this for a couple weeks. The dog will never pee or poop in the house unless it's a true accident because the dog was going to burst and die or got sick or something like that if he didn't do it. Why does this work? The dog's not given the opportunity to fail. So, the dog views pooping in the house is unacceptable. So, we put the puppy down. Puppy runs over to the kid. The kid picks its, picks its hands up. The puppy starts looking at the kid's face. Pick the puppy up. Pick the puppy up. Immediately. Pet the puppy. Put the puppy down. Puppy goes back to the kid. Puppy engages in any behavior that you think is excessive. Pick the puppy up. Put him in a crate. That's it. That's all. That's all you got to do. Now, what you want to do is train the child and the dog because you do want the dog and the child to have a bond and be affectionate toward each other. But that can be handled later. We don't want to use a shock collar. We don't want to use any form of true discipline that's uncomfortable for the puppy in association with the child because we don't want to damage the relationship there. But that's all that needs to happen. The licking of the face beyond one or two licks is unacceptable. We also have to, like, you have to evaluate your kids, dude. Your one kid that had the problem is older now. The other kid's about the same age. Are they old enough to communicate with? And maybe you need to wait another year before you get the dog. You know, it, it really depends. I mean, we've never had a problem with it. But one thing that we've always had... Going for us is when we got, you know, our first dog after I was with Matthew, or with Dorothy, with Matthew, our son, he was seven, a little easier. He really wanted a dog. But I'm going to tell you, we dealt with it because you get on the floor with the dog, the dog climb on his back and all like, and you tell him, listen, if you lay down like that when that dog's doing it, he thinks you want that. He'd get all upset about it. Listen, you got to stand up. So you got to train the child and the animal both. The dog has languages, and you seem to understand this from your email, that it understands. And certain postures and behaviors mean certain things to the dog. The dog does not have the intellectual capacity to change that. Even the four-year-old child does. So one of the bigger things then is training the dog in absence of the child as well, or training the dog in the presence of the older child in the absence of the younger child. You have to create that separation at some point. And when the dog can conduct itself properly with the older child, it will conduct itself properly with the younger child, though the younger child will still need some guidance. But in the end, when the dog behaves in a way that's unacceptable, pick the dog up and remove the dog from the situation. And every time that behavior is unacceptable, don't yell, don't get mad, don't get upset, don't lose your calm, assertive energy. As the pack leader, what would the mother do if the puppy was being engaged in unacceptable behavior? She'd go over and either separate it from the behavior by intervening and put her body in between it, 
This pup is young enough and she really doesn't want the pup doing something anymore. She'll pick it up by the scruff of its neck and go carry it somewhere. Or she might even bite it. Now, a mother biting her pup, he ain't going to hurt them. But dogs use biting in their hierarchy to say no to each other. So you do the same things. We grab the dog by the neck gently. We pick the dog up. We don't pet the dog in that situation. We don't reward the behavior. We don't punish the behavior. We're neutral. We pick the dog up. We wait for the dog to calm the hell down. We take the dog over here. We put the dog down. Kid goes on about his business. What happens is the kid is actually encouraging the behavior that they don't want to happen. You seem to grasp that as well. So you need to train the dog and the kid both. And that's that's really the basics of it. It's really not that hard. And if, if you talk to your kid and you really don't think you're going to be able to do it yet, like the kid doesn't really seem to get it yet, well, you know, maybe you wait one more year. If that gives you a better experience with your dog and you don't end up having to give a dog away that you got attached to, You know, that's for the better. Well, the other thing is take the kid to go visit puppies. You know, and find the puppy that the kid gets along with that's not too rambunctious for the kid. The natural bond is there. And there's, there is a, a fundamental reality that some people and some dogs have natural bonds. And I try to always temper this with the knowledge that I have an ability with dogs that some people don't. And there is a innate part of who I am that has an ability to communicate with a canine uh, that I can't just give you. Um, so it, it's just like somebody says, well, it's easy to play a guitar, Jack, and I pick it up and it sounds like ass, right, no matter how hard I try. So I try to always temper that. But dogs are not guitars. Um, they actually are a lot easier, as far as I'm concerned with anyway. To, the, the, the rules are a lot less complicated. Because if you put your fingers where they belong on a guitar and you don't push exactly right, it still sounds like ass. But if you if you do what you're supposed to do with a dog, unless the dog is damaged in some way or just a, you know an idiot, there are dogs that are just like there's dumb people. There's dumb dogs, and just like there's violent people, there are violent dogs. And and and, and picking the right dog to start with is important as well. But in the end. You know, most dogs, if you do certain things, they're going to give you the results that you're looking for. And remember, like I've said so many times when I talk about dogs, the dog needs you to be in control. The dog needs you to be dominant. Not just so that it will behave properly, for it to feel safe and confident. The dog needs to feel that the humans are the alphas in the pack. Period. That every human is above it. Because you are. And that's a natural order. The dog does not have opposable thumbs. The four-year-old can go to the refrigerator, open the refrigerator, take out a piece of bologna, and feed the dog. The dog can't do that. The child, the four-year-old, in the canine's brain, is superior to it. So it needs a, a, a base of operations that says the people that are actually the, the pack members that are superior to me are competent. I'm good here. I'm safe. And that's what makes a dog happy. And I know that sounds crazy because people don't want other people to be in charge in general. People want to be in charge of their own lives. Dogs and people have a lot of similarities. We've been working together as a team for thousands of years. And the dog, more than any other animal on the planet, has bonded with human beings and is more human-like than any other animal. 
including apes and monkeys. I know monkeys do have opposable thumbs. Monkeys can learn sign language. Monkeys can open doors. But monkeys are not bonded as a species with man the way the dog is. Harnessing that bond and remaining in control with calm assertive energy solves 90% of the problems you'll run up against with 90% of the dogs you'll ever deal with. All right. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys you can help support the Survival Podcast uh, by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Being it's my first day back, I don't have an item of the day for you and I haven't had for a couple of weeks. I'll have a cool one for you guys tomorrow. But, again, all you got to do when you're going to shop online If you want to know any of the products I recommend, anything like that, just go to tspaz.com. And as long as you go there before you do your online shopping, you will help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. With that, let's uh, let's talk about our song of the day. The song of the day today is by the Beatles. And this is one of their songs that was never a hit, but it is uh, a song that's been around for a long, long time. came out on the White Album. And this is when the Beatles were about to like explode. They were really reaching an end of their... Time together as a group. Uh, they actually brought Eric Clapton in, who played lead guitar for this song when they recorded it for the album, and that actually calmed everyone the hell down. He was good friends with George Harrison, uh, who actually uh, wrote this song, and and uh, Clapton was afraid the other Beatles wouldn't want him there. It turned out they all liked him and they all got along, and it helped actually get the session done so that's a cool thing now the song itself while my guitar gently weeps when you first listen to that song especially the opening lines you kind of get the impression of like a guy laying there with his woman in bed and it's really the imagery i think it's designed to conjure up where she's been hurt in a prior relationship and he's being punished for something the guy before him did That's pretty easy for most men to understand. You know, unless you were high school sweethearts or something like that, and usually that girl had a screwed up daddy or uncle or something in her life that still, but, you know, it maybe isn't as bad as if she had like a a, you know, a, a three-year relationship with a guy that was a shitbag or something. Um, but most of us have dealt with that in relationships with women. You, you're punished for the prior guy's discretions, right? And it's easy to take this song as, as being that's what it's about. I think you're using that imagery on a much more artistic level. This was also kind of the time that um, George got the whole band to go to India and learn about transcendental meditation and stuff like that. And um, I think this is a much more ethereal, broader song about how, as an artist, you're always trying to convey these wonderful thoughts about love and peace and harmony and the damage that's been done to people in general holds them back from seeing the potential that they have as, as, as loving beings. And uh, so that's what this song says to me. And remember with music, it's okay if it means 10 different things to 10 different people. Anyway, this is a great song. It's, uh, it's really kind of the Beatles at their best and a little bit different than most of their stuff that was successful. With that, after being gone for a long time, I was glad to be back with you. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Gently weep. 